Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn again to John chapter 19. Picking up at verse 25. Second half of verse 25. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus Then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would give us understanding of your word, that we would hear it and that hearing it would lead to conviction, and we would not um, run from that conviction, but we would do the work of self-examination and repentance. And Father, that we would then walk in newness of life and walk in a manner worthy of our Savior. So help us illumine our hearts and minds by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we're continuing on in the Gospel of John, and we're receiving from John his description of the events that he witnessed during the crucifixion. In this passage, we learn that some of his disciples, a few women, were at the scene of the crucifixion. In in the accounts in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, Jesus prophesied that his own men, his apostles, would abandon him when he went to the cross. Jesus, just before his arrest, uh, told them, he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Yet from John's gospel and the the other gospels, we learned that he and several women were not scattered as were the others, but they courageously attended to their beloved Jesus within, you know, as as he was before their eyes, as he was enduring the cross. They're there, they're close. Uh, Ryle writes, women were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. And Calvin says that those who came from the tomb were apostles to the apostles. Those women. I mean, I think they're there. This is what we're going to contemplate in this sermon. They're there because the tender compassion of women compels them to be there, right? Their their beloved 
in, in, in the case of Mary's son, in the case of the others, their dear Jesus, is being crucified. And they, they want to be there. There's nothing they can do, but they, they want to be near. The text says that they were, in fact, standing by the cross, at least within sight of Jesus. We'll take that. And perhaps these women were the only ones grieving in the midst of a crowd that is just casting insults and mockery at Jesus. They're the only ones who are silent and and just grieving. I can imagine that the crowd at a certain point would have taken, uh, taken, seen them not casting insults and would have begun mocking them for their own grief. Taken with the other Gospels, we learn that there are likely four women here. There's some debate on whether this is three or four. I think it's four. Here's how we can best reconstruct who those women were. Mary, the mother of Jesus. That one's easy. Her sister, who according to Mark was Salome, the mother of the apostles James and John. The sons of thunder. Right, who would that would make them cousins to Jesus? And then Mary, the wife of Clopas, who was also called Alphaeus, Clopas was also called Alphaeus, who was the mother of the apostle James the Less and of Joseph, and then Mary Magdalene. We don't know much about Salome and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Of Mary Magdalene, we know some, uh, but let's focus on Mary, uh, the wife of Joseph, mother of Jesus. There with Jesus, in the midst of his most intense battle, is his mother. She would now be in her middle 40s, um, maybe late 40s. The words of Simeon from decades earlier are probably filling her mind as she grieves and the crowds are jeering. She's sad, the crowds are hostile, all looking upon Jesus. But you remember what Simeon said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword, he's saying this to Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul. To the end that that thoughts from every heart, from many hearts, may be revealed. And so Mary's heart, think of Mary. Think of Mary's heart being pierced through with grief, undoubtedly, at this point. She had given birth to Jesus. She had nursed the Son of God. She had cleaned his wounds when he skinned his knees, right? Moral perfection doesn't mean, that he, doesn't mean that he didn't suffer the effects of the fall in his body, and so he had wounds on his knees. She had scolded him when he disappeared during that one trip to Jerusalem. She had seen him grow in stature and favor with God and with men, and now she was seeing him die. Die by the hands of sinful men. Her heart must have ached. 
It's the heart of a mother. It must have ached at the sight of her son suffering so greatly. But she knew if she, if she knew Simeon's prophecy that her son was appointed for this moment and appointed as a sign to be opposed. She knew that her son was going to be the kind of man that everybody would have a swift and strong reaction to. By anyone's response, by everyone's response to to Jesus, men would fall and men would rise. And such has been the case through all history. All men fall into one one of those two categories. Those who hate Jesus and so fall. And those who love Jesus and so rise. Mary would see this and, and call Simeon's words to mind and, and likely even as she grieves and sees him dying would take a great deal of comfort in that prophecy. Things are working out as, as the prophet said. And there also near the cross, by the cross, was Mary Magdalene. She would soon be angry with that man she supposed was a gardener who had removed the body of Jesus from the tomb, right? But it wasn't a gardener. (laughs) It was Jesus himself. Jesus, years before, had um, set her free from the oppression of seven demons, Luke 8, we read this, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. I mean, we we just quickly go by that. What, what joy Mary Magdalene must have felt after being oppressed, not by just one demon, which would be torture that many of us could not handle, but by seven. Imagine her thoughts and her emotions and her soul being dragged about in seven different directions by the demons who hated her. Imagine her being at the mercy of malevolent powers that absolutely wanted to see her damned to hell. Imagine then her joy at being set free by the lover of her soul. That gratitude, you know, that gratitude must have just set her apart from from others. And it was undoubtedly the reason that she was there at the cross as Jesus died. You know, standing apart from the crowd, gazing upon the death of the one who had delivered her, heart filled with anguish. You know, these women showed calm courage. They had calm courage. The apostles saved John. John was the only one that that stuck it out. The apostles had fled and abandoned their post. But these women took their stand. 
Now, this is what happens when men fail. This is what happens when men abdicate, isn't it? It is not simply that women sit by when men fail to lead and let things fall apart. No, they often step up and take charge. Particularly when their children are facing disruption. This is not to make the case that leadership, that kind of leadership of the woman ought to be normative, right? I wish you all were here for my Sunday school this morning. No, Scripture won't let us get away with that. Men are to lead, women are to follow. But, give me a break. What woman looks on when her husband's, you know, failures are destroying her children and just is like, well, I, I guess I have to submit. It ought to be no surprise that Mary is there at the cross when Jesus is dying. That is the power of the mother's love for her son. That's what it is, the intensity of that love. Deborah would be another mother in Israel when Barak was unwilling to do his job, when he was cowering. Ryle, interestingly, makes the following point on this passage, and it may make some of you who are of the fairer sex uncomfortable, but it ought not. He says, whether all Christian women should always come forward and put themselves in such public and prominent positions as these holy women took up is a grave question about which each Christian woman must judge herself. Considerations of physical strength, listen, and nervous self-command must not be overlooked. The four women who stood by the cross neither fainted nor went into hysterics, but were self-controlled and calm. Let everyone be persuaded in their own minds. Some women can do what others cannot. Right? It wouldn't have been good if the, the women had gone there and just had been in hysterics. Right? It wouldn't have been good for Mary to have knowledge of what was happening there especially and go into hysterics right? and, and lose self-control and huff and puff and, and um, speak words that would be regretful. It's so refreshing to have some commentary like Ryle's that is specific to the female sex, isn't it? That's the first thing I'd say in response to that. The feminist had not yet silenced Ryle and his ilk. But it is wonderful to me that Ryle considers what the weaker sex, as the woman is named by the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 2, is capable of bearing because of her relatively less physical strength and her temperament, the general temperament of women, which can collapse in fear. Fear and weakness, physical weakness and fear. Now here's what it says in 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives 
as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, not hysterical. Gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, I read all of that to show you that Sarah was, was commended for doing what was right without being frightened by any fear. Fear, okay? And the weakness of womanhood is not to be mocked by men. It is not the reason women are weak, so that men can assert their strength and mock it. No, it's not to be mocked by men, but it is to lead the men to live with their wives in an understanding way. In an understanding way. And what is to be understood, the, what you're to understand is that the woman is weaker. Now, to bring this back to the scene at the cross, the men are gone. The men are gone. They've been scattered. They're, they left Jesus. They're gone. They have fled, saved the beloved Apostle John, right? And they, like Abraham, Sarah, have not, you know, these women, like Abraham, Sarah, have not given into their fears and gone hysterical at the foot of the cross. They are self-controlled and they do what their womanhood calls them to do, which is to minister to this man as he's dying. It would, though, have been better. Hear, hear, hear me out. It would, though, have been better if those apostles had been there, ministering to their dying Savior. That was their failure, and it would have been better had they been there. But in their absence, in their abdication, in their fleeing, in their fear, those holy, godly, wonderful, faithful, you know, courageous, weaker women are going to carry the weight. <laughs> now, I'm going to give you a rather raw example. I was encouraged by a dear friend of mine, Dr. Steve Berenzi, to confess my sins to the congregation because he's seen the devastating consequences of pastors not doing so. For the past month, I have been angry. I've been angry. I have complained to my children about every single little blemish they make on the walls or on my cars. I have been annoyed at the decisions that they make that cause me 
to have to bear weight. The seeming immaturity that they demonstrate has been annoying to me. I've snapped at them when they don't respond. I, as you know, I've snapped at them when they don't respond to me as I think they should respond to me. I have yelled. I have whined. I have murmured. I have given the Israelites in the desert a run for their money. Seriously, it's been terrible. And one night, I was once again going off and loudly complaining about some incompetence of this or that child. Having done this or that stupid thing, which may or may not have been stupid at all. And my wife did not take my side. She did not take my side. And I said to my wife, you never take my side. Why do you never take my side? And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to be your helpmate now. Perfectly calm, perfectly controlled. She wasn't in hysterics. She wasn't afraid. She just said, I'm going to be your helpmate now. And I knew what was coming. And she socked me to the moon. And with perfect self-control, she looked at me and she said calmly, you're, this is what she said. She said, your anger is going to make you lose all authority in this home. And I was undone. I was so angry. Oh, my. I mean, I was just like, I had food in my mouth, and I was like saying nonsense words, and food was falling out of my mouth. That's how angry I was. And I said to her, you haven't seen anything yet. For the next hour, I was hot. And then for the next 48 hours, I did not say a word to my wife or look her in the eyes. I let the sun go down on my anger two days. My prayers were hindered. And thankfully, I was able to force myself on one of my morning walks to listen to Scripture early in the morning. And the Lord was so gracious to me. You have no idea. The Lord was so gracious to me and had me hear, actually hear this verse. Had me, he, he took me to Colossians, and I'm just listening to it as I walk. And there's this verse, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Oh, and how embittered I was, you know. Then just two verses later, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't lose heart. 
And I just walked around our neighborhood like a, a freak crying. but still not being willing to repent of my anger. I had another half day on a fight on my hands to see the hardness of my heart before the hardness of my heart began to melt. And I've thought about it a lot, and I think my anger has, had, had gotten a grip on me because of just deep-seated discontentment. But I... I mean, but I've bared myself enough already. Do I have to keep talking about my sin? Here's my point. My wife, that glorious, weaker vessel, stood between me and my children. And that statement about her being a helpmate to me and then destroying me, that was love. That was love. Okay, the husband and father of my own household had taken a leave of absence and had to rise up and lead. And if I ever hoped to have any hope of leading my household, of building my authority, which God has commanded me to do, I better return to living in the fear of God. I mean, there are so many things I could say about this example, right? What the woman's call to submit is and what it isn't, right? There are these hyper-patriarchal guys that if I gave this example, they would run me out of the church and say, how, how in the world could you let your wife treat you like that? Are you ladies going to be helpmates or not? That's your calling. You may not be nags, but you better speak and better be helpmates. You know, this, this, this is what you need to do. And if, if you walk around your house trembling to rebuke your husband, something's wrong. If you've negotiated that so that that can't ever happen, you don't know the first thing about biblical sexuality. Okay? This is important. She did not belittle me. She was precise like a surgeon. She said one very calm sentence. So I could talk about from this what it means to submit and what it isn't, the calling of the Father to die to self and live to others. And if, if you stop dying to self, you start getting upset about the dings on your car door and the marks on the walls of your house. That's all stuff you provide for your family to consume, and you can't take it with you, right? So consume it. I could talk about the way that discontentment leads to further sin, but the point I want to make based upon our passage today is this. The, fa the failures of men sometimes obligate the weaker woman to carry loads that they are not able to bear for very long. Okay? 
The apostles abandoned Jesus during his most terrible trial, and there came the women to love Jesus right to the end of his life. Praise God. In the midst of crowds that were hostile and spitting and mocking Jesus, it was an ugly business and even uglier that women had to be there carrying the load. The men should have been there. It was ugly that the women were there. But they would have it no other way. That was their Jesus. That was their their child, their son. Their love for God compelled them to do that. So now then, what happened next? Jesus, even in agony, sees his mother and sees his beloved John. If the selfless and gloriously self-controlled actions of the women being there by Jesus' side show us what it means to not be self-absorbed, the words of Jesus here do so even more. I mean, think about this. Who has the kind of love and kindness and heart to be able to think of others while he is bearing the wrath of God? The next words Jesus would speak on the cross, after all, are these. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he would say next. Death with the sting is fast approaching and the pounding blows of the father are falling upon his son, not because he wants to abuse his son, but because his son has willingly become the curse. Right? The father is pouring out his wrath, unmitigated wrath upon the son, and Jesus is in the midst of that caring for his mom. He's just caring for his mom. In fact, if we look at the the word from the cross, the third of which we are contemplating, John, we see Jesus setting his mind on others. The first was, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. He's thinking about those who are crucifying him and he's praying for them. And then, today you will be with me in paradise. Blessed assurance being given by Jesus to a dying man who has just professed his faith. And then to his mother, woman, behold your son. In reference to John, and then to John, behold your mother. And it is quite clear what these words mean by what Scripture says next. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. It's it's interesting to me, and this is just sort of an aside, that one of the comments that Ryle makes on this passage is it seems strange that Jesus would commit his mother into John's household given that given that there are blood relatives, other children of Mary and Joseph that he could have gone to. And Ryle says that's the strongest argument for the view that there were no other children that Mary had. Else... Jesus would have committed them to one of their households, not to John's. Interesting argument. Likely, though, remember this, Joseph had died years earlier. Joseph is not around. Jesus knew that his mother would be pierced through by his death, so he gives her into the care of his 
his uh, top disciple, right? His number one guy, the beloved Apostle John. And John would take up the task and care for this dear woman, the woman who gave birth to the Savior of the world. The woman that all generations would call blessed. Even still, she needed the care and the protection and the love of a man. And the Apostle John received that commission from Jesus. And so not only was John called to be an apostle, he was called to be a loving son to Mary. And so what do we learn from this? Well, first, we ought to pray that God gives us this kind of love for others. Even as Jesus carried more weight than he had ever had up to that point, atoning for the sins as the Lamb of God, he was concerned with his mother's shelter, his mother's protection, his mother's place to rest. Is that your disposition toward others? Is that our disposition toward others? Or, or is it your tendency to put burdens on others rather than relieve their burdens? Mothers, learn from this that you can and should get up for the fourth time in the night to nurse your babies. Fathers, learn from this that your sons and daughters will not instantly be mature and will leave marks on your automobiles and why do you care so much about cars anyway? Children, children, siblings, stop biting and devouring one another. Right? Relieve people's burdens. Be nice to people. You don't know what kind of terrible things have happened to them that day. Right? Relieve people's burdens. Do not add to them by gossiping and slandering and name-calling and provoking. There is already enough sin in the world. Let's not add to it. Second, Jesus kept the fifth commandment, which we knew But here it is in action, Jesus keeping the fifth commandment. He gave us an example. Be concerned with the well-being, physical and spiritual, of your parents. Relieve their burdens. And I'm talking, you little children, relieve the burdens of your parents. And you older people, relieve the burdens of your parents. We also learn this, don't worship Mary. Okay, If there had been something to worshiping Mary, I think it probably would have been set up right here. But there is nothing but ordinary love and concern shown to her, right? She needed John's basic care. And that proves that she is uh, no more than an ordinary woman. Only extraordinary in the sense that she carried the Son of God in her womb. And then lastly, remember by Christ's example that he is always mindful of you. No matter how heavy your burden is right now, Jesus is mindful of you. Right? This passage shows us that we may cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. Right? There he is caring for for his mom, and that is his disposition toward all of you who are carrying various burdens around. 
He knows. Cast your anxiety on him. He cares for you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross. We thank you that he loved us and continues to love us for all eternity. I pray that we would be godly men and godly women, that we would know our station. Father, that we would not fail, that we would not be fearful. And Father, I pray that you would, you would help us to truly bear one another's burdens. I pray that you would forgive us for our self-centeredness so far from the example we see in Jesus. Let us live for others and for their good and for their building up, even if it means that we diminish, especially. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.